Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Today's guest is Chef JJ Johnson. This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Martin's was founded in the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch country in 1955. They are the number one branded potato roll in the U.S. And as I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. Case in point, while I do love this soft and squishy and delicious potato roll, Martin's has a roll called the Big Marty. It's actually not a potato roll, but it's a sesame seed bun. You need to find this. It is so delicious. And I'll tell you, If I'm ever listening to Rachel Ray create a burger on the fly or for a cookbook or a show or anything, a lot of the time she'll say, oh, Cappy, what bun should we put this on? And most often, it's a Martin's Big Martin roll. Here's what I love about Martin's. Their mission encompasses more than just baking great bread and buns and rolls. They believe in giving back to their community and beyond. Through volunteering time and donating resources, they support hundreds of charitable organizations, such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others that provide sustenance and comfort to people in need both close to their baking facilities and abroad. To learn more about Martin's and check out some great recipes, go to potatorolls.com and follow them on all the socials at Potato Rolls. Martins, we thank you. Today's guest is a chef, father, author, TV host, and so much more. JJ Johnson is based in Harlem, New York. He recently received the coveted title as one of the best new restaurants in America by Esquire magazine. JJ's an extremely charismatic and confident chef, I'll say, but he uses it for good. It's helped propel him in his culinary career throughout his whole career, I should say. He's a giver. He gives and gives and gives. His wife is a nurse, so he's been feeding frontline workers. JJ Johnson has twins, and he also has a third child, an infant at home, so needless to say, he's busy. Furthermore, JJ Johnson is a James Beard award-winning chef for his cookbook, Between Harlem and Heaven, Afro-Asian American Cooking for Big Nights, Week Nights, and Every Day. He opened Field Trip Restaurant, a quick casual rice bowl shop located in Harlem that highlights rice traditions from around the world and globally inspired flavors and techniques. There will be about four of these by the end of this year, I believe. He's a TV host on Just Eats with Chef JJ, airing for its second season on TV One's network, Clio TV. And before we get going, we do have some awesome merch for you all. If you want to check that out, you'll find a link in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. We have those super soft tees and hoodies and different styles of hats and beanies as well. So check those out. And please enjoy this episode as we go Beyond the Plate with Chef JJ Johnson. All right, Chef, let's do a quick audio test. Can you name 10 cheeses for me? Oh, wow. 10 cheeses. Uh, Monte, um, <laughs> uh, Asiago, uh, Stilton Blue, uh, Smoked Gouda, two-year-age cheddar. Sweet. You're good. One, you have twins. Two, you recently, kind of recently welcomed a new, a uh, third child. Three, your wife's a nurse and you are cooking for frontline workers at a hospital. Um, we'll touch more on this later on. So first things first, how is your family? Uh, my family's good. My family's healthy. 
I have a 95 year old grandfather that is old and going through old people problems. So we'll see how he holds up, but he's been a fighter his whole life and been in World War II and all that good old stuff. So, uh, but overall, my family's good and healthy. Uh, and, and I'm very thankful for it. How old are the twins now? Uh, Miles and Taya are three and a half, and they are a handful. <laughs> are they good eaters or no? They're okay. I think they're starting to get back into their stride now. Uh, right at the end of like two, right when you're about to turn three to three and a half, I think that's when parents kind of collapse and they just give their kids whatever. I, I, I refuse to collapse. Of course, you have some like moments where you're like, just eat. I just need you to eat. Uh, but for the most part, they're all right. Vegetables, for some reason, I, I didn't focus on vegetables when I was younger, when they were younger, which I think is hurting me a little bit now. But I always figure out how to sneak vegetables in if I still use like the packet method or, you know, things of that nature. So I'm kind of like opposite. I feel like I uh, I have twins too. They're, they just turned two. And I think for me, I enforce vegetables so much. I'm like, I, they, I need to make sure they eat vegetables. And now I'm needing to get more like iron and meat, and, you know, poultry into them. And they like eat it, but not as much. It's like easier for me to get a vegetable. So I was so focused because in the, the time when they were young like that, I would I had them like in the morning, so I was a, I was breakfast dad, so I was always doing like the cool oatmeals and you know the the crazy omelet games. Uh, so they do have their fruit preference and they do eat fruit really well, but vegetables I just didn't do a good job. I'm happy you did a good job, but it's also interesting. I believe kids everything is mental when it comes to food. It's the verbiage you use. It's it's uh, what it looks like on the plate. So like my kids love steak, but they don't know that they also eat lamb. Uh, they also don't know that they eat goat, right? They, I just like, oh, it's steak, it's steak. And like, oh, it's steak, great. And they just like throw it in their mouth, right? So you have to kind of play those games when you have young children. For sure, for <laughs> sure. Well, let's, uh, let's take it back to your childhood, shall we? Why don't you share with us, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Northeast Pennsylvania. You guys are probably reading a lot about that on the news today. And, uh, but yeah, I grew, up in, I grew up in the Poconos. Uh, my dad is from Harlem in the Bronx. My mom's from Long Island. My 95-year-old grandfather retired about six, at 64, 65 years of old age and moved to Pennsylvania um, and it, we we all went with him. I cooked in my my Puerto Rican grandmother's kitchen when I was a young kid, uh, and I grew up as I grew up as a, a rural kid. You know, dirt bikes and four wheelers and skiing, uh, hunting. You know, those are things I grew up with. But food was a big part of my household. The best moments happened around food. Everybody's birthday dinner. Somebody was always chosen to cook somebody's meal. But as a young kid, I. Uh, Rode my bike to a country club where I was a dishwasher. I've always wanted to cook. I stayed there from 14 to 17, and then I went off to Culinary Institute of America. Wow. So who inspired you in the kitchen as a kid? My grandmother did. Uh, she played really loud music. I didn't really watch cartoons. I was kind of right underneath her. She had spice cabinets, and her spices were in glasses. She had big stock pots. She made her own stocks. My great aunts, uh, which I thought were... Her sisters, when I grew up, but shame on me, they were my great great aunts. Uh, they were her sous chefs. So she had like a team. There was always big dinners, platters. Everything was always getting made by hand. It was like uh, this love of affair of food going on in, in my kitchen, in my grandmother's kitchen, or in the Poconos. That's cool. So, is there a specific dish or a moment where you're like, 
I love food or were you just always around it? So it came natural. I saw a commercial to Culinary Institute of America and I said I was going to be, I was going to go to culinary school. Like at a young age? Like seven years old. Really? Yeah. It's really crazy. My mom kind of laughed at me. My mom was like, hell bro, you're going to be like a politician or a doctor or, or a teacher. Or you're going to have a pension. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Of course, mom. So tell me about that. Tell me about that moment you saw that commercial. Like what happened exactly? I, I was in college, like up at two in the morning and saw a commercial for a culinary school. I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, and I worked a little bit in food before that. But when I, I had seen, I had heard about you seeing that commercial, I was like, pretty sweet. I want to hear more about that. No, I was young. I, I, I can see it in my mind right now. I was sitting on the floor of my grandparents' house, watching television. Commercial comes on uh, for Culinary Institute of America. They used to have a jingle. I can't remember what the jingle was, but it shows like the beautiful high park, the people in the kitchen, the toe cats. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, that's what I want to do. And then I just kept at it. And my dad told me to, you know, always live life like you could have, should have, don't ever live life like you could have, should have, would have. Live life, you know, in fulfillment. Fulfill the moment. Do the things you want to do. Because my dad lived life like he could have, should have, would have. He always looked back like, ah, I could have done that or I should have done that. And he didn't want me or my sister to, to live life that way. So, you know, my parents were married about almost 40 years. My dad would be taking me to basketball practice, saying to me, don't live life like you could have, should have, would have. Then you would come back in the house and my mom would be saying, so don't forget, you're going to a four-year college. Don't forget, what are you going to do? You know, so it was like this kind of like tug and pull. And then at one point I had to have like that real conversation with my parents and say, this is really what I want to do. You've seen me working. You've seen me cooking all the time in your kitchens now. I'm cooking for everybody's birthday parties. And then I had my uncle. My, my uncle lived around the corner. My uncle owned a crab boat from Chesapeake, from, from, from the, from Chesapeake Bay. And we used to get beautiful crab meat in the summer times. We always would have these crab cake challenges. And he, him and my uncle Donald and Aunt Lisa were the ones that would take me out to really nice restaurants because they didn't have a kid uh, to really later in life. So they would take, I remember eating escargot with them or clams on the half shell. First time I had clams, my uncle was like, can't put lemon, you can't put lemon juice on there. No hot sauce. You, need, you really need to know what it tastes like. And I was like, bro, you're bugging right now. <laughs> Nobody wants to, I'm like 15 years old, like nobody wants to clam on a hatch. I was like, if you really want to do this, you need to start knowing what things really taste like. So my family was very supportive of me and they could see the passion. Did they ever believe I would be who I am today? Maybe my father did. Uh, but there was plenty of times through my career that I wanted to quit as I got, as I got deeper into it in culinary school uh, or worked in kitchens and I was like, mm, I don't know if this is really for me. Do you remember the first thing you ever cooked as a kid? And how old were you? First thing I ever cooked as a kid was lasagna. Burnt the whole bottom of the pan. And I was like, yo, look at the cheese. It's melting. Oh, my God. And everybody, that was, I, I think it was on Lisa's birthday. She let me cook for her birthday. I was like 14, I think. And I burnt the bottom. And it was, and my uncle roasted me for a year about that uh and then the next and then somebody else's birthday came and i i think i redeemed myself birthday dinners will always happen at my grandfather's house because my grandmother died when we, when we were younger so we kept that tradition we would always have these birthday dinners you would always get whatever you wanted it didn't matter what it was if you wanted lobsters you would get lobsters if you wanted burgers you would get burgers whatever you wanted for your birthday that's what you got 
uh, and the family kept that tradition going for a really long time. I think the first thing Rachel Ray ever cooked for her mom was uh, lasagna roll-ups, she called them, actually. So, <laughs> enough, yeah. so I read this article, you didn't win an award, and you said, I think I, I, I still think I was robbed. I don't think anyone was cooking better than me. <laughs> Do you still stand by that? Oh, 100%. There was nobody. When I was nominated for James Beard Rising Star, um, I was the chef de cuisine at the Cecil. Nobody was cooking better than me, than me across the country at that time. Like I remember Sean Brock. I remember winning Best New Restaurant of the Year, Esquire. I remember Sean Brock coming to Cecil and like eating at the table and being like, yo, bro, you just brought me back to Senegal. Like, how the, how the fuck did you do that? And I'm like, really, Sean? He was like, yeah, yo, your flavors are so complex and good. Like, I never tasted food like this. And I was like, okay, this guy's probably just saying this. But then I started to really like listen to what people were saying or how they would describe food or just the journey I was bringing people on. Like at that time, nobody was cooking food of the African diaspora and people were cooking it, but not at that high level or getting that exposure. I I just believe that uh, at uh, looking back, maybe food media just wasn't ready uh, to, 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 to make that turn. And we've seen them. I think we helped, I think I helped open up the doors to a lot of other people receiving awards in those areas and that style of food. Uh, but no, nobody, I mean, Jessica Largy won that year uh, from Marisa. Like I can name, I know the list by, I know that list by heart. <laughs> I, I feel like I was like LeBron in game seven and I, or like, or I was like LeBron when I was in Cleveland and I got bumped out early of the playoffs. Like, yo, I know I'm, nobody's better than me. And then I came back the next year and the next year and the next year with vengeance. Wait, so, so Sean Brock, who's an incredible chef and is in, and has done incredible things for food and the food world comes in and, and tells you all this about your food. You're young at the time. Real, yeah. Like when did you realize you made it as a chef? Like, did you know you were like a bad, I mean, you knew you could cook them, but is there a, t- is there a time or a moment where you, you're you like, you knew you made it? You know, we throw around the word chef a lot, right? It all, everybody throws around that world word. You know, I, I was a young guy working at Tribeca Grill and I used to see this chef, Stephen Lewandowski work. He's like 28, 27. I was like, yo, I'm going to be like this guy. Like he comes in early. He works on all the sauces. He makes sure it's good. He sets up everybody for success. He commends the staff. He's orchestrating. He's working things around the room. Like this is who I want to be like. And then I met other chefs around the, around the way, Brian Ellis, Zach, that also ran kitchens that way. And Cecil was the first time I ever ran a kitchen. In the beginning, it was really, really hard, right? You have to get a team behind you that wants to work for you. That's when you're the chef, or that's when you're the manager, or when you're a leader, when people want to be with you that might not agree with what you do. And that's what started happening at Cecil. Like I was taking young, I was taking guys and girls and like really honing their skills where they could have left me and worked in any restaurant in New York City or the country. You know, people that nobody would have ever hired that was able to cook at a really high level. That's when I started realizing that I was becoming a chef, right? I can show you a dish. I can teach you how to roast duck properly. I can show you how to make this sauce. Then you also do it the way I show you how to do it. That's when I started to realize it because I think in my heart, I'm always going to be a cook. That's how I came up. But when I started running a staff and we started getting a consistent level and people wanted to work for me, and the vision started to come through. That's when I started to become a chef. And I would say that happened in like 
year two uh, of the Cecil. Like we opened in 2012. So like 2014, I started to be like, okay, I kind of think, I kind of know what I'm doing here. You know, like I know how to build a menu. I know how to train. I know how to write descriptions. I know how to, you know, I know how to hire. I know how to do food costs, labor costs. You know, all these things started to come in into play. Uh, and, and I would say that year two, that's when Sean started, came by the restaurant and uh, started he, he ate the food and we had that conversation. Yeah. So you're named the chef of the Cecil and Esquire calls it best new restaurant in the country. How did that feel? That was a pivotal moment for my career. I, I remember Josh Zersky, late Josh Zersky coming in, maybe like 45 minutes left to, to we're supposed to be closed. Uh, we sit him down in a corner dude that brings him, I can't remember his name. They were posted just like get a drink because he was never going to come there. He said that outright when I spoke to him the first time, I was never fucking coming here, man. Like, this is a joke. Like, I was like, what is this? Right. We had this like honest conversation. I didn't know who he really was. And I remember him taking the oxtail dumplings, breaking the oxtail dumplings with his hand, looking inside, eating it, kind of looking over his shoulder and then just go back in and then order another one. And it became like this moment. And then he was like, Hey man, JJ, like I gotta get to know you better. Like you gotta walk me through these dishes and, and walk him through the dishes. And he came back and he came back and he came back. And he, he wanted to be, he wanted to become a really dear friend, friend of mine. I respected him. And, I, and I've always thanked him that he was a pivotal moment when a lot of people didn't believe in what I was cooking, Josh believed and he made people reflect and said, this, this is, this guy's crazy. And then, you know, Joshua David Stein came and then people started to come 430 and 30 started to happen for me. And, and certain people started to embrace this food culture, this food movement and really start to lift me up and be like, okay, I think you need to get to know who JJ is. And, and I think I stayed, I think I've stayed humble through the process but that was a that was a very pivotal moment for my career. Uh, no, no, I don't think any, anybody can nobody can take that away uh, from me, the team, the ownership. Even though that restaurant doesn't exist anymore, uh, we did some special things there. Yeah. Well, I was going to say you're no longer affiliated. What ha- what happened with that? Well, you know, owners. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't oh, an yeah. I wasn't an owner at that time, but owners partnership people. I think when you when you as an owner now, I think when you go, when you have partners, you have to have really defined what people are going to do or you clash and there's no exit. And when you're the big guy at the top, you can do whatever you want. Was that hard for you? Or are you ready for the next challenge? I'll call it. You know, my wife always says to me that I should have probably took left before I stayed. I was kind of like the captain on Titanic. Like I, I was there to the end. I sent the staff away. I wrote letters. I helped transfer vendorship. Like you would have thought I owned the place, but I learned a lot through that. I learned a lot through that time. Uh, and, and I think, I, I don't think I would have done it any other way. I think that was the right thing to do. Yeah. Okay. So after, after CIA, you went to Ghana? No, I, after CIA, I, I, after CIA, I cooked in New York city at, at Jane, Central Vinoteca, Morgan Stanley opened up the first Smith. Then when I was at Morgan Stanley in 2011, I was trying to leave restaurant associates or try to get promoted. They wouldn't promote me for some odd reason. I was going out for jobs. Nobody would, nobody would give me an opportunity. 
I went on Rocco's dinner party, won my episode, Alexander Smalls contacts me, then we go, then I go to Ghana, right? Then I go to Ghana, he's talking about this Afro cooking diaspora, I have no idea what he's talking about, shame on me. Then when I'm in Ghana, that's when it all hits me, that's when I find out what I should be doing in life, what I should be cooking. Um, and a lot of my friends would say, hey, you're going to find yourself there. You know, when you go to the slave castles, you're going to find yourself. I was like, I'm not going to find myself. I know you guys found yourself in slave castles, but I'm not going to find myself. I never got a chance to go to the slave castles. I wish I went. We were stuck in traffic for like four or five hours and we turned around because the traffic and the crowd's insane. You don't leave at a certain time. But I started to find myself through food, this remembrance of my grandma's kitchen. I'm a, I'm a kid of the African diaspora. Hold on, why haven't I been cooking this food? Why hasn't anybody told me? Why am I still making risotto, right? And, I, and, I, and I, what I realized is that when you're a chef, you go to culinary school, you work in restaurants, you hone a skill and you, you, you perfect that skill, right? Of that cuisine. I was having this moment of like, hold on, I wanna create this cuisine. I wanna expose people to something new. And then that's when I came back uh, and it opened up the Cecil. Wow, that's why. So we had a, a, a woman that helped take care of our kids for a little bit who was from Ghana. So I, I saw that and I was like, oh, sweet. And she has like a, a catering company here in Chicago. Oh, wow. She, okay. Like Ghanese cuisine. Yeah. I'm sure her jollof I'm sure, I'm sure rice is good. Her jollof oh, yeah. Is good. Oh, yeah. Have you been back or no? You know, I've been invited to go back. I've been invited to go to Nigeria. I've been invited to go to Morocco. South Africa. I think when I started hitting my stride as like a business owner, I had to take a couple steps back on the traveling. I wish I could travel at a long period of time like that, but at this moment, no. But I will go back and I will do Nigeria, Senegal, Morocco. I, I have to do that uh, for my own personal well-being. And I think I'll come out of that creating something uh, special. Did you learn anything there, like cooking skills or, or, or tricks of the trade that you still use to this day? The big, one of the biggest things I learned in um, Ghana was that scent of food, like the aroma of food, plays a big factor on what people eat. And then most of the time when you're cooking a very Euro-style style cooking, you're, there's not much of an aroma. There's a flavor, but there's not an aroma. And aroma plays a big part of my cooking. So like when you get the plate and it comes through the dining room or you're getting your takeout container, that smell of that flavorful food hits you in your face before you, before you taste it. So I've always taken that, you know, that you always, in the street food in Ghana, in somebody's house, in a hotel dining scene, aroma is a big factor. I, I've taken that with me. Uh, and then, of course, the love of rice started when I was in Ghana. I, want, I definitely want to get to that. So, and then you go from, you're in Ghana, you come back to New York. What was the big dream? I, you know, I just want, at that time, I was just trying to cook when I came back from Ghana. Right. The, the dream was like, oh my God, I'm running a restaurant. And this is great. Finally, I get a chance to run a restaurant. And I remember having this conversation with Richard Parsons and Alexander, uh, who were the owners. And I said, hey, guys, I know you're taking a chance with me because I've never run a kitchen before. And if it doesn't work out, just let me know. It's all good. That's how I went into it. And they looked at me like, what are you talking about? Right? Like, no, I'm really serious. Like, if, if a month from now, two weeks from now, if like, it's a shit show, I can't get the food out the kitchen food costs, whatever's high, you can always come and be like, yo, listen, JJ, thank you very much, but it's, it's, it's time for you to go. And, and I've always understood that. And, I, and because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big believer of the process or the progress, even though there's a lot of things that I look and be like, oh, I, that should happen in New York. I should have done that. But I, 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 I see in due time 
that things will work itself out if you believe in it. And if you work really, really hard and you take advantage of the opportunity when you get it, it should work out for you. So now you have Field Trip. Tell us about that. So Field Trip is my fast casual rice bowl shop. It's located in Harlem, New York. Well, I can't say it's located just in Harlem, New York, but it's a rice bowl shop. It's different rice, rice from all around the world. All of our rice comes in freshly milled, no enrichment or bleach. Uh, I believe that rice is one of the most disrespected ingredients in the United States. And I'm just trying to bring a little bit of respect back to it. Uh, and, we, and, and we all have a rice culture. Uh, and the goal was that if we put field trip in Harlem, that if it made it in Harlem, it can make it anywhere in the world. Harlem has had our back through this whole crazy time and has lifted us up. And now field trip will be uh, into, uh, we'll have a total of four field trips at the end of 2020. That is amazing. So if I said to you, rice is the answer, what is the question? Rice is the answer. What is the question? Rice is the answer. What is the question? Question is, what's the hardest thing to cook? Ooh, nice. Most, most people will say rice because they don't know how to cook it and they grew up with this like overcooked or undercooked rice. And there's just a couple of us that are like, oh my God, I got, you know, that fluffy rice is amazing, you know? But uh, so that, that, that would be the question. Got it. I did see a recent post on your social media and it looks like something's brewing in Rockefeller Plaza. Yeah. So field trip is coming to Rockefeller Center uh, in December. Uh, There's one coming there and there's another one coming to Long Island City next week. Nice. Exciting stuff. Well, thanks for taking the time uh, as you're in the middle of a restaurant next week. So, but all, okay. So this said, you're, you're about to open Rockefeller, Long Island City next week, Rockefeller Center. All this seems great. Glamorous. (laughs) A a chef's life isn't so glamorous all the time or isn't necessarily glamorous. Talk about what are the downsides of this career or obstacles you had to overcome? I think the biggest part of this career are long hours, right? At the end of the day, it's a working class career. It's something you work really hard at, you're on your feet, and people value at a very small level. You know, overcoming long hours, I'm still trying to overcome long hours, and and, and I think overcoming long hours equals balance in life, right? How do you balance your life out? Can you have a life? And I think that's something that chefs and us, we always talk about. Can you have a life? Can you have a family? I believe it can be done. I believe it's all about who you work for. Everybody works long hours. They just might be a little bit different, right? People in the stock market work long hours. People in the financial world work long hours. But you got to find the balance. You have to take time for yourself. You have to take time for your, with your family. And you might just have to be a little bit more proactive in this career. So I've learned how to be more proactive, planning vacations. What holidays am I going to take with my family? How am I going to take those holidays? So that's what I've been able to do in my career. But over time, over a lot of failures and stuff. And then, and then I would say the next thing is like, how do you get paid your value? Are you worth more than what, what, what you're doing? That's something hard to overcome because potentially the margins are, are, are thin or low uh, here. So I would say those are the top two things on, on, on my mind um, as I grow, as a business growing. And then, and then I think personally, uh, I'm, I'm always pushing my peers to be more diverse. Yeah, I like that. So you just shot season three of Just Eats with Chef JJ. And when I tune into some of those episodes, it always seems like you're like just so excited to be around food. 
what is it about food that lights you up? Well, just eats on Cleo TV. It's the people, right? It's these people that typically you don't really realize are foodies or like just love what I'm cooking or want to cook it at home. But food is one of the greatest connectives and being on the screen, regardless what network you're on, you're connecting with people. They get to know you. They, you're, 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 they take your food in their, their kitchen with you. They get to cook and make, make somebody happy. And that's what makes me excited uh, when I'm on Just Eats and cooking or anytime I'm cooking uh, uh, for something is somebody's able to take my recipes and cook it at home and make somebody happy. Because ultimately, that's the business I'm in. I'm in the happy business. We're in the middle of this pandemic right now. When you realize this pandemic wasn't going away towards the beginning, March, April, May, what role did you think you were going to play as a chef? Wow. In the pandemic, at first, I was just trying to figure out how to stay open. No, the word is like, I was figuring out how to push through. And I kind of refused. I remember being on the phone with like my peers and they call me. So like, yeah, I'm, I'm closing my restaurant. I'm like, why are you closing your restaurant? It's just like two weeks, man. It's two weeks. I'm like, no, bro. It's not two weeks. <laughs> no. And they get on the next person in phone. They tell them, no, don't close. Stay open. You, it's going to cost you more money to come back than you potentially going to your restaurant cooking three or four items by yourself. Don't do it. And my peers closed and I stayed open. And I just wanted, I just wanted people to be able to have food. I was like, okay, I, just want, I want people to... It's a lot of people in New York that don't have a place to cook. They're roommates. They live in a shelter. Their apartment building maybe have no gas. There's a lot of those people, or a lot of those people in Harlem, these stories you hear about, or my employees. And, and that was the first step. Just like, how do I keep the doors open? It was gritty. And then the next step was, my wife came home and said, hey, did you bring food home today? And I'm like, I was like, sleep on the couch. It's 1.30 in the morning. What are you talking about? It's like, I, I haven't eaten all day. It's 7 in the morning. We haven't eaten all day since 7 in the morning. I'm like, okay, hold on here. I didn't cook anything. I didn't bring anything home, but let's figure something out. You shouldn't be eating, trying to eat cereal. And then the next day I sent her, her and her team food. And I said, well, she's struggling downtown. What about our media community? I took, took it to Twitter. Say, anybody know anybody at Harlem Hospital? A couple people got back to me, but a guy I used to work with, I was a general manager at Minton's. I uh, said, yeah, my wife's in the ER room. I was like, oh, can I send her any team food? It's like 100%. They'll love that. They're getting killed. Like literally. It's insane. So dropped off the food like outside the door, backed up. Somebody came, grabbed it, hit people, on, went on Twitter. Like, I think I just did the best thing in my life. I gave 40 bowls to the ER room at uh, Harlem Hospital. And somebody came back and was like, yo, I match you. I'll match him. It was like this crazy organic effect. Somebody called the restaurant. Yo, JJ, this is Jason from Maryland. Hey, what's up, Jason? How can I help you? My wife's a big fan of you. I want to give you $2,700 to give bowls to people in your community, hospitals, frontline workers. And I'm going to call my friends and I'm going to call you back in three more days. I'm going to give another $2,700. And I was like, whoa, uh, I need to channel this. And you know, I've done work with Chiara Strength. I sit on the board at the food bank in New York. And I said, hold on, let me take some of my skills. Let me call some teams. Let me call some people that worked with me. Let me call Lisa Cash. Let me call my partner, Will, who's not really that involved. He's my partner. And let me call him. And we all got on the phone. I said, Will, if there's anything I need you to do, I need you to figure out how to build a buy a bowl program out. 
He was like, all right, I'll, I got you. He's like, but at cost. He's like, I was like, whatever, just how we get the maximum amount of bowls out. I need to get these bowls out. I need to call our staff back to get them in the restaurant. I need you to build out this side of the program. So we had Will at the anchor. We had, we had Craig, who's on my team, Valerie doing PR, Lisa Cash, team came. Will was calling old PR people that he worked for. It was like a team of like 10 people that we flushed it out. We flushed out, brought my sister in. She was laid off from work. She played a big part on it. She managed our feed program and we built it out. And next thing you know, we were feeding people every day. Nonprofits started contacting us to give us food, to, to team up with them and give food. And it was, it, it was one of the most amazing things ever. But the, I think what, you, what made it amazing was we didn't just feed anybody and anybody. We fed the community, Harlem, upper, upper Manhattan and the Bronx. That was our focus. We weren't bringing food to Brooklyn or Elmhurst. Maybe at times we did for these one-off things when people reached out to us. But the focus was the community because those people are people that should be eating at Field Trip or were eating at Field Trip before. But brown and black communities were getting hit hard. And I wanted to make sure that doctors, nurses, housekeeping, maintenance were fueled with really delicious nutritional food. This is why this community is amazing like you in this chef community, because we started this podcast three years ago to talk about all the good you all do because people, too many people know you for the food you've put on a plate, which is totally fine, but they don't realize the amount of good you all do in the community night after night after night. Correct. And this is three years later, no one obviously could have anticipated this. It just gives a whole new meaning here. You are like, talking to peers probably late at night, deciding like what the hell you're going to do. Can the restaurant stay open or closed? Shit. I got to lay off staff. Shit. I got to walk in full of food that may go bad, but you're still trying to find ways to feed people. Like that's incredible. Listen, the, the chef is, and you, I mean, you hit it on the nose. The chef does way more than what I think anybody thinks. I think than anybody thinks, but the restaurant also does way more than what anybody thinks. I'm not sure if people realize it yet, but chefs have figured out how to make restaurants a necessity, not a luxury. Some chefs, right? And restaurateurs. But also, you know, when I hear things like, oh, crime rates up in certain areas in New York City, it's like, ooh, look how many restaurants are closed on that block, right? Restaurants were keeping neighborhoods safe. It's a 24-hour thing. The trash gets picked up. The porter's in the restaurant. The lights are on. Somebody comes in at five in the morning. It, it makes these cities or these towns go and employs your kids for their first jobs like me or, or you know, it, it just does a lot more than what a lot of people realize. And I hope people are realizing it now. Yeah, agreed. So obviously we, we, we just got deep into how chefs give back and the, and the different ways they do. And now more than ever, y'all are stepping up as the industry needs it. I wanted to ask, are you surprised? Obviously you're not because you know, we've talked about how much you all do, but you have a hospitality group called Ingrained. But when did the idea of giving back become ingrained in your DNA? I mean, giving back has, has always been a part of it. I mean, when I was at when I was at the Cecil, we used to feed the tenants above us that were homeless and now put back they had a place to live, right? Working with, you know, Michelle with, with uh, Wholesome Wave or Bill Telepan with... Wellness in the schools. Wellness in schools. Working at the food bank, you know, 
hunger has always been this, this ending of hunger has always been near and dear to my heart. It was actually the first time where I, I was like, Ooh, I actually can pierce it. I actually can make direct impact. And I don't think there's many times when people can make a direct impact. You're like working with a nonprofit. You're hoping that they're going to do something that you believe in, or they're close to something you believe in. And this was the moment where I was like, okay, I'm giving produce boxes to NYCHA across the street, which is low income housing. But that's, those boxes are coming from a local farm. I get to pick the farm they come from. And then those people get to eat really delicious produce. They're not thinking about it like that. They're like, well, I just have food that I can cook now. But I'm like, okay, I'm closing the gap. I'm changing the flow of how people are eating. And that's really important to me. So can you share more about your work with Food Bank for New York City? Yeah, Food Bank in New York City, I sit on the junior board. I'm a big component of like helping raise money through my brand on the junior board end. Uh, We're always focusing on, you know, hunger in New York City and who, who should we be feeding? Right. And in Harlem, there's a there's a there's a bank there and feed a lot of people. And, I, and a lot of people like myself, I used to think the food bank was feeding homeless people. They're feeding everyday people, your next door neighbor, somebody you might work with. That that's where their lunch break is. So, yeah, that's what I would do a whole uh, with uh, with food bank wellness in schools. We adopt a school nearby field trip and we come and teach the kids four times a year about a new ingredient. Our ingredients always rice. But it's great to see. I think it's good for kids to see me because I look like them. And we're always having fun and great conversations. So do that with wellness in schools. And, and then now it's just, you know, and now our big work is with Rethink. So working with Matt at Rethink and, and doing amazing work with him. He called me one time. I've known Matt for years. When he first started Rethink, he was like, JJ, I have money. I need to feed people. And I see what you're doing. How can I contribute? And I was like, as long as the food can stay in Harlem, it's great. He's like, I have a connection at a church in Harlem. Let's team up with them. And the next thing you know, we've been feeding and we're still feeding with Rethink. And, but for me, every, every community that Field Trip goes in, I hope to be feeding people in every community we're in, Long Island City, Midtown. And we'll, we'll feed people in very different ways and different initiatives and uh, di- different times, right? Not, hopefully there won't always be a pandemic, but if there's a hurricane or earthquake or something, you can always count on Field Trip to step up for you. Yeah, that's good. Good stuff. And I think for anyone listening, I mean, it's like, give what you can, you you know, like we're not asking for a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks. It's like some people use their social media or their voice. Some people do have a dollar, $10 goes a long way, you know, or your time, whether it's volunteering, helping deliver a meal, whatever it may be. There's, there's a lot of different ways to do it. And I think chef hit upon some incredible organizations. um, If you're in the New York area between food bank for New York city uh, between Rethink Food and, you know, Rethink NYC does incredible work, wellness in the schools. And a lot of these organizations, while a hub may be New York City, they're in other cities and expanding to other cities too. So. Yeah, and I mean, a, b- a big component, I can't believe I forgot them, is Harlem Grown. You know, Harlem Grown is a big par- par- part of this as well. Early on when we started feeding people, then they, he, and Tony came to me and I went to Tony and said, hey, what's up? We need to feed kids. He's like, oh, I, got, I have kids that just don't have food. I was like, well, let's figure it out. And we figured it out. And next thing you know, he launched a program, Harlem Helping Harlem. So everybody, and I think that that's the greatest thing when you're in these real communities, you see people really step up and really help each other. When you're in places where people believe that that's what the community is and that's just commuters, that's when you lose track of what a city or, or, or a place is built on. All right, let's do a quick speed round and then a couple of questions just to close it out here. What did you have for dinner last night? 
I had Dominican food, red rice, yellow beans, and roasted pork. Nice. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Oh, Cuban. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Oh, fermenting garlic. What pisses you off in the kitchen? (laughs) A lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Running out of stuff on your station. Mm. And what makes you happy in the kitchen? Mm, Seeing beautiful food and people leaving with smiles. What actor would you want to play Chef J.J. Johnson in a movie about your life? Who would I want to play me? That's a really good one. I never thought about that. I'm that's something for me to think about. I'll come back to you on that. All right, man. Somewhere there's a young, there's a young JJ out there. There's many of them. They're 10, 15, 25 years old. What advice do you have for him or her? I believe in the food and the food will always get you to where you want to be. Don't worry about the TV. Don't worry about the press. If the food is good, somebody will always come and write about you or find you. The moment the food isn't good anymore is when you lost yourself. In 2018, you published an award-winning cookbook we hit upon Between Harlem and Heaven, Afro-Asian-American Cooking for Big Nights, Week Nights, and Every Day. Not only is that a fantastic title, what would the title of your autobiography be? Am my autobiography be? No, I'm not good at names, but I would say the grit, hard work, long nights, big weekends, and everything you need to know. Love it, man. Love it. Well, JJ, thank you for doing this in the midst of everything you have going on. I really appreciate it. It's been a joy to talk to you. It's been a joy to hear about your story and in your journey, which, you know, still has incredible work ahead. I'm sure. I hope you feel good about what you do, man. Cause you know, you're, you're, you're making, you're putting smiles on people's faces, as you said, and feeding, you know, feeding those in need. So thanks. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks again to Chef JJ Johnson. Find more on him at chefjj.co. To learn more about Share Our Strength, go to nokidhungry.org. And for Food Bank for New York City, go to foodbanknyc.org. Also, be sure to check out Wellness in the Schools, Wholesome Wave, and Harlem Grown. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Play Podcast. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you to Sarah McClellan Me for her digital media skills. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. And don't forget, join us this Friday for another episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, made possible with the help of our friends at Deep Betty Vodka, We're joined by Deep Betty's own Lynn House. She's going to share with us her house, Bloody Mary. Get it? Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.